You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back for this next half hour on Real Presence Live with uh, myself, Jack Kennelly, and my wife, Doreen, Doreen <laughs> as your hosts. And uh, we're going to have an interesting, we have a real interesting uh, half hour coming up for you. We're going to be talking with uh, Steve Weidenkopf uh, about the Crusades. And the Crusades is one of those things where I think uh, people often use that as somewhat of a, uh, a, a cudgel to beat up on the church. And so we thought it would be good to have someone, uh, an expert in the field, who can you know kind of give us the truth about it. And uh, Steve is a lecturer in church history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology in Alexandria, Virginia. And he's given numerous presentations and seminars on church history, marriage and family life, human sexuality and theology throughout the U.S. and Canada. And he served as the director of the Office of Marriage and Family Life for the Archdiocese of Denver and as an advisor to Archbishop Charles Chaput and was an instructor at Our Lady of the New Advent Catechetical Institute. And he has recently published a new book, Timeless, A History of the Catholic Church. So, Steve, welcome to Real Presence Live. We're glad you're here. Great. Thanks for having me on the show, Jack and Doreen. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, I mean, we gave a brief uh, uh, introduction there, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you hit the high points there. You know, I teach church history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, teach multiple different courses, uh, You know, two survey courses, really, of church history, covering all 2,000 years. Um, also a class on the Crusades as well, as you mentioned uh, at the show here, that we'll We'll get into that subject, so that's a, a great class that I enjoy teaching a lot. Um, you know, and I'm married to my beautiful wife, Casey. We have uh, six wonderful children and one grandchild, so uh, just enjoying life and, and uh, very happy to uh, talk about not only Timeless, but I actually have a new, uh, more recent book that was published by Catholic Answers. came out just this week called um, Light from the Darkness, Nine Times the Church Was in Turmoil and Came Out Stronger Than Before. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that as well. Oh, talk about a timely <laughs> book. Thank you for writing it. <laughs> yes, thanks for giving us something to look forward yes. to. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, it's, uh, It was a book that, you know, over the years, have, have, as I've given talks and presentations and, and have taught, you know, I get asked frequently the question, you know, um, looking at our own day and age, are, are things, you know, have things ever been as bad as they are now is usually the question I get from people. And I always, I always kind of, stru- you know, scratch my head when people ask me that question because, you know, as, as someone well-versed in church history, you know, I immediately think, well, well, no. I mean, there's been a lot of horrible times in church history where we've had um, significant problems and significant crises, but it dawned on me that, you know, most people don't have a, a good understanding of our history, and so they don't know these stories. Uh, and so I sat down, I wanted to write this book to, to be able to have it be a source of hope, um, not just to say, oh, things were worse, you know, difficult times in church history, you know, not to blow off the current crises and things that we're struggling with in the church today, um, you know, not some kind of empty platitude, but rather to, to show that when you look at these crises in church history, what actually comes out from them is goodness, that, that the Lord does bring forth renewal, restoration, uh, and reform from, from all these crises, and that's a consistent pattern throughout church history. So, it's, it was, it's an attempt to hopefully give Catholics a, a sense of hope and to lessen anxiety about our current situation. 
Well, that's certainly timely to say the least, like Doreen said earlier, uh, you know, because, you know, we are kind of going through a, a, a dark spot, it seems like, in the church right now, at least uh, the way we're being handled by the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and, and I talk about that in the book in particular. The last couple of chapters are all about the Enlightenment and, and the modern world that we find ourselves in, so... Steve, could you just back up just a little bit? I'm um, interested in knowing how you were led to um, history and your passion for for history and um, the importance it in you know for all of us to to know our history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that question, Doreen. I mean, I, I grew up in a military family, so um, I had uh, my dad was in the Air Force, and my grandfather was was in the Air Force as well, or the Army Air Corps during the Second World War, and so I. Um, from that experience, frankly, I, I just was very interested in, in military history as a, as a young boy and as a young man and um, began to research that and read various books independently of that. And then when I went to um, undergrad, I, I did my undergrad at Syracuse University in, in upstate New York. And while there, um, you know, one of the things that students had to do, at least when I was there, was you had to fulfill these certain core requirements in the liberal arts curriculum. And one way in which to fulfill those requirements was you could take a, a specialized track in uh, medieval history, medieval um, you know, studies, and look at different courses. You could take different courses, um, you know, covering the Middle Ages. So looking at the literature courses, fine arts courses, history courses, kind of all wrapped together. And so I, I thought, oh, well, that seems interesting. Well, I'll take that. And um, while I, I walked through that those set of courses, I really grew in an appreciation for that time period in Europe. Uh, you know, the time frame from about 1,000 to 1,500, it was, uh, you know, 500 years there. And um, I really enjoyed that, and I saw clearly, as I took all these different courses in, in a very secular institution, but that the Church shone through, right? The Church was a major player in those centuries and really formed uh, Europe and, and even, you know, the modern-day uh, Europe, really, at least provided the foundations for all the things that, that we enjoy in the West today, the university, you know, higher education, um, hospitals, a sense of charity to, toward others. I mean, it's, you know, really even just the preservation of, of uh, you know, ancient learning, ancient, you know, Greco-Roman manuscripts were preserved in Benedictine monasteries for centuries. And so the Church was, the, you know, the guarantor and the the um, you know the, the what is it, what is it, what the the preserver, if you will, of, of Western civilization. So through those courses, I just I kind of grew in love with an understanding of, of uh, that time period. But then the church as a whole and the church history, and uh, that led me to pursue you know additional uh, studies and and uh, you know go on and study theology as well, and um, kind of led me to where I am today, frankly. Yeah. So your own personal history. And your um, the way in which you were kind of introduced to history, I love that it was part of your family life, being part of the military, and then um, you know at a secular university that you could see the impact of the church in the world, which continues. What a what a great reflection! Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Before we actually get right into the Crusades, why don't we talk a little bit more about your book and who were. Who were some of the heroes and villains uh, of the faith that you, you know, that you came across as you were putting together your book? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, there, there, that's the great thing about church history, really. When you look at the two thousand years of our of our church, that there are these great heroes and villains, right? In pretty much every time period that you can study, um, even in the dark times, as I point out in the book, there are multiple. 
uh, examples of good people, whether it's, you know, secular rulers and lay people or, um, you know, saints of the Church or even just, you know, clerics who, who were oriented towards reform and wanted to change the Church and make her better. Um, so some of the things, people I highlight, you know, heroes in particular, would be Pope St. Gregory VII, who instituted a great, perhaps the greatest reform movement uh, in Church history in the 11th century during his pontificate, where he really focused on trying to limit the in- interference of secular rulers in the Church. Um, you know, the centuries leading up to that, the papacy even had become a, a plaything, if you will, of secular rulers uh, wanting to use the power and authority of the Church for their own political power and political gain. And so you see that that, that whole struggle between Church and State it was very prevalent. It's one of the major characters, if you will, in the story of the Church uh, throughout her time on Earth, and, and we still wrestle and deal with those kinds of interactions today. So it's a very interesting reflection to look at how people in the Church handle that. So Pope St. Gregory VII, one of the great heroes, uh, St. Peter Damien, living in the same time around the 11th century, who called for reform, especially clerical reform. He was living at a time when there was great sexual immorality in the Church, and he you know, railed against that and, and called for the Pope to reform uh, the clergy. You have St. Catherine of Siena. I have a whole chapter at the end of the book about how Catholics can respond and how Catholics should not respond during a crisis in, in the Church. And so I highlight St. Catherine as an example of how to respond, because she lived in a very difficult time, a time of great crisis, but she, um, you know, she called the, even the, the popes to task. Uh, to, you know, they, this was a time in the post were living in Avignon, the south of France. She called them to come back to Rome, and but she did so always with obedience, always with fidelity, and always with a, an understanding of, of rooting herself uh, in, in Christ and in love for him and love for the Church. And then I contrast her with another individual, a uh, Dominican by the name of Savonarola, who lived in Florence in the 15th century, who took the opposite tack, who really was very combative uh, to the papacy and to the Church, and it led him into schism and led him into heresy. Oh, so there's quite the cast of characters in our history, particularly during that that period of time. So, um, well, we're coming up on a break in about a minute, but I think uh, why don't we... Uh, get into the Crusades just a little bit, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll uh, we'll really jump into it. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. So uh, I guess maybe with the time we have, we can just briefly introduce them, right? So the Crusade that you mentioned, uh, you know, Jack earlier, is one of the most misunderstood period uh, period of time in church history. And I think one thing we can at least talk about here before the break is is the fact that the Crusades are, are something we have to see them as a movement, really, right? Although there are seven traditionally numbered crusades where Western warriors uh, went to um, Muslim-occupied ancient Christian territory in in the Holy Land and in North Africa, the crusades really were were a larger movement that occurred for centuries, um, all the way from the 11th century even up to uh, the 17th century. So the Church was very involved in these activities for a long period of time, and we as Catholics really need to understand them and know them, because they, they do play a, a very important role for a long period of time in our Church's history. Okay, well, let's, I think this is a good time to uh, to go to the break, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with Steve Weidenkopf more specifically about the Crusades and uh, you know how, how they've been misrepresented and how the Church has been misrepresented and uh, you know what the truth of the matter might be. So stay with us. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, 
and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. SJ Machine, proudly named after and dedicated to St. Joseph, provides quality machining and induction heat treating to a variety of industries. Just as St. Joseph worked diligently to meet his family's needs, SJ Machine strives to understand and meet your production needs. Prototype to production, working together toward success. SJ Machine can be reached at 701-347-0155 and are a proud supporter of the Real Presence Radio Network. Hi, I'm Carrie Dew, Executive Director at Riverview Place Senior Living Community in Fargo. For over 35 years, we've been honored to nourish our residents in mind, body, and spirit. We offer a full calendar of activities, events, and faith-based programming, and the best food in town. Our independent and assisted living residents thrive in our warm, comfortable, and compassionate community. We'd love to meet you. Call Marin or Katie today at 701-237-4700 to line up a tour. If there is a merciful God, how can he allow such suffering? I'm Father Chris Alar. God took his greatest risk in giving you his greatest gift, free will. He risked that you may choose not to love him and to hurt your neighbor. But even then, God wants to bring a greater good out of evil. There is no worse evil than a creature nailing his creator to a tree. Yet God brought a greater good from it, your redemption. God doesn't want you to suffer, but he allows it. Why? Because your suffering can also be redemptive when you share in the cross of Christ. It is not easy, but when you learn how, it changes everything. Please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're live. Jack Canelli and Doreen Canelli, your hosts, and we're talking with Steve Weidenkoff. And we're specifically now uh, talking about the Crusades. And so, Steve, we'll let you just kind of take it from there. You gave us a little bit of an introduction, so uh, I'll give you the ball and you can run with it. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks, Jack. It's, you know, the Crusades, are, again, as I mentioned, are one of the most misunderstood events uh, in church history and even in European history, frankly. Um, and uh, before we went to the break, I was talking about how the Crusades really should be seen as a movement, right? A centuries-long movement, frankly, which begins in the 11th century and carries forward all the way into the 17th century, and it was an integral part of the cap of Catholic life and of, of the Church's focus, frankly, for these centuries. And cause I bring that up because many times, you know, people say, oh, the Crusades, these are things we shouldn't talk about or we should bury our head in the sand about them or just say, oh, yeah, those were horrible things and move on and, and not address it. And I think that's the wrong attitude to take, right, Be- because... As I mentioned, this was such a, a, a long movement and, and really involved the activity of the Church for so many centuries, uh, where you have popes calling for crusades and saints encouraging warriors to go on crusades. I mean, this really was a focus of Christendom for, for hundreds of years. And so we can't just easily, you know, uh, wipe it away, if you will, or just wave our hand at it. I mean, it's something that we, even in the modern day, need to understand and know about. Um, principally because, as you mentioned, Jack, right, that this is one of those uh, historical clubs, if you will, uh, that people use to, to beat the Church up with. And there are a lot of myths and misunderstandings about it. And 
A few years ago for Catholic Answers, I wrote a book called The Glory of the Crusades, where I walk through many of these different myths and, and refute them with authentic history. And um, and that's another great point to make, is that, you know, within the academic world, um, you know, many of the myths and misunderstandings that people have in the popular world, if you will, about the Crusades, they're, they're not um, accepted or embraced. They're actually rejected, frankly, in the academic world, which is a good thing. But, um, you know, a lot of that good scholarship and research that's been done over the last 50 years or so in, in the academy and, you know, in the universities have not, has not really filtered down, if you will, into a more popular audience. And so that's what I tried to attempt to do with my book, The Glory of the Crusades, uh, years ago. But, you know, we can kind of start with just a, a general overview of how the movement began. And so it starts to, really in the 11th century, and, and what happens is you have this new group of people uh, they're known as, as the Seljuk Turks, who come down off the Asian steppe into what is modern-day Turkey, at the time was the, known as the Byzantine Imperial Province of Anatolia, uh, Asia Minor. So they come down into that province, they fight against the Byzantines, which you you know people should should know was a, a you know Christ, Eastern Christians, uh, Eastern Catholics, if you will, living in that area at the time, and. There's a great battle that occurred in 1071, the Battle of Manzikert, where the Eastern Imperial Army was defeated by the Seljuks. The Eastern Emperor was actually captured and held in, in captivity for a period of time by the, by the Turks. Um, and eventually that led to the Turks then conquering most of what is modern-day Turkey uh, and causing a significant problem for the Eastern Empire. And so a future emperor, Alexius Komnenos I, then sends requests back to the West uh, specifically to the Pope, asking for Western warriors to come to the East and to help him recapture his territory uh, and to defend the imperial territory from these these Turks. Uh, and so that begins, that's kind of the genesis, if you will, of the Crusades, at least in the 11th century, although the origins really stretch even further um, in history behind that. If you go to the beginnings of Islam and how Islam sees the world as divided into two different houses, right? Muhammad taught that there was the, the Ummah, or the community of believers in Islam, all those who recognize, you know, Allah as one God, as, as God, and Muhammad as the Prophet, they live in the, what he called the, the, or what is known, rather, as the House of Islam. And then you have everybody else who's not uh, a member of the House of Islam, and, and they're referred to as being in the House of War. And so there's a constant battle between those in the House of Islam and those in the House of War, uh, through jihad, where members of the House of Islam are to bring members of the House of War into the community of believers through violent struggle. And so that led his followers to this great uh, expansion, uh, and they went and conquered most of, of you know, uh, North, all of North Africa, frankly, of the Holy Land, um, even made, uh, you know, Spain, modern-day Spain and Portugal, and Islamic forces even raided into France um, in, in the 8th century. So you have this great expansion of Islam, and, and these territories that they conquer are ancient Christian territories. And so... You have over the centuries then some, you know, periods of peace, time where, where Christians and Jews and Muslims are living together fairly peacefully. Um, but even if there was peace, Christians and Jews living in a Muslim-occupied territory were treated, you know, little better than slaves. They were really lower-class citizens. Uh, they were restricted in many different ways in their daily living and in their occupation of what they could do. And so there was great harassment. Uh, at times, there, there was significant societal pressure to uh, convert to Islam. Uh, and so this was a significant problem for Christians in this part of the world for a number of centuries. And then, as I mentioned, the Seljuks come, and that kind of changes the dynamic. And so what happens is when the Eastern Emperor asks uh, the Pope for help, 
Pope Blessed Urban II at the at a local church council at the Council of Clermont in 1095 in France calls what comes to be known as the First Crusade, where he asks warriors to leave their home, to leave their families, and to travel east and go to the Holy Land, specifically to Jerusalem, to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and to liberate the Church uh, and that territory from, from Islam, to return it to Christ and to, uh, and to the Church. And so that really launches then this centuries-long um, you know, campaign of crusades. So there are multiple different campaigns over a series of, the, of years and centuries, the First Crusade was really the most successful crusade. It accomplished what it set out to do. It liberated about 600 miles worth of, of uh, ancient Christian territory. And uh, and the Crusaders, most of them, after they finished their, their armed pilgrimage, they went back to Europe. Uh, but many stayed in the Holy Land to defend the territory that they had liberated. And they established these feudal territories, which we call the Crusader States. Um, and, and those would last for about 200 years or so in total. Uh, and then um, ultimately the crusading movement shifts and changes from can- active campaigning to the east to recover Christian territory. Instead then, to as you move into the 15th and 16th century, 17th century even, uh, the crusading movement becomes a defensive operation, uh, of the defense of the homeland, if you will, uh, when the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, uh, they then begin invasions of Eastern Europe into Hungary and even make it to the gates of Vienna. And so Christendom has to respond to those invasions as well. So it's kind of a, just a general historical overview of what the Crusading movement is. I don't know if we have any other specific uh, things that you want to get into. But Did this have any um, impact on the faith of the, the people, you know, the, the Catholic faithful, you know, those that weren't on Crusade, as far as yeah, I mean, it, personal it, it, faith? Sure, yeah, it impacted people. I think we can, I can probably answer that in two different directions. I mean, the, the crusading movement, um, you know, obviously the Islamic occupation of these areas had an impact on the Christians who were living there. Mm-hmm. Um, but from those in, in, you know, Western Europe who didn't go on crusade, what we see is as the movement evolves and changes through the centuries, you know, those who stay at home were given greater opportunity, if you will, to participate in the movement in some way. So in the 13th century, you have one, a, a very good pope, a great pope in the history of the Church, Pope Innocent III, and he um, expands the crusading privileges. So one of the reasons that motivated men to go and warriors to go on crusade was the spiritual uh, privilege of the indulgence. Right? Mm. Those who participated in the crusade received the plenary indulgence. And so it was just initially, in the early stages, it was just for those who participated actively on the, on the crusade. But Pope Innocent expands it and expand and grants that crusading indulgence then to even those who stay at home, who, let's say, provide funding for someone to go on crusade. Because warfare is expensive. We know that in our own day and age. It was true back in the uh, you know, 11th and 12th century. And, uh, and so those who, who gave money, to, to someone to go on crusade, they could also receive the indulgence. Those who prayed or who acted, who supported the, the movement at home uh, in some way could also, you know, participate in these different spiritual privileges. So Innocent expanded that um, that ability for the lay faithful to to do that, and that, that continued really to, um, you know, increase fervor for these campaigns and to continue to make it an integral part of Christian life in Europe uh, for centuries. Do you think the threat... Um, that Islam was at that time to Christianity helped the people to see um, the, you know, kind of to see what it was that um, they could lose. You know, 
They're... Yeah, I, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, the medieval world is so different from mm-hmm. our own day and age, right? We, we grew up in a, in a pluralistic society, those of us in the West particularly, right? We grew up in it. We grew up in a pluralistic society where, you know, we, we think it's completely normal to, to have people who believe differently from us in terms of faith or, or no faith even. Um, and, and we can get together and, and, you know, still live peacefully and coexist in a, in a peaceful society. Um, but that, that was not true in, in the medieval period of time, right? People did not have that understanding or that uh, sense of community, right? Their sense of community was much different. Mm. And so, um, you know, Christians living at the time, you know, realized that uh, many of them probably saw, depending on where they lived, right, would, would never even come into contact with someone who was Muslim. Um, in some areas of Christendom, that would not be true. In Spain and other places, you, you would you would be well aware of, of Muslims. But in other areas of Europe, France and England and others, you probably wouldn't be that, that overly familiar with it. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, people who believe differently, um, you know, who held to radically different doctrines, uh, you know, would people in, living in the Middle Ages would see them and, and perhaps see their their beliefs as, you know, contrary to their own mm. Uh, society and even even a threat, frankly. So, and they'd hear they'd heard reports of Christians in the Holy Land and other places, you know, being harassed. Pilgrims would leave from Europe and go to Jerusalem on a regular basis, and and sometimes they were allowed to go on their pilgrimage peacefully. Other times they would be uh, harassed. So, you know, people were aware of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're coming up on our break, Steve, but we certainly want to. Thank you for being with us today. I'm hoping maybe we could have you on again sometime to maybe talk about the Knights Templar and some other aspects of it. But before we go, uh, uh, why don't you uh, uh, give us the names of your, your books? We had the Timeless a History of the Catholic Church as one that I have in my notes, but you mentioned the second one. Light from Darkness? Yes, yeah, the new one is Light from Darkness. Uh, nine times the church was in turmoil and came out greater than before, and that's by Catholic Answers. It just came out this week. You can find out more about my books on my website. It's just my name, Steve Weidenkopf, all one word, dot com. Okay, great. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Stay with us. We've got more to come on Real Presence Live. 